According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, turning in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter. In fact, we're getting down now to verses 13 and 14. So we will cross over from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And in some respects, the chapter division is slightly unfortunate, um, as is often the case, because the content continues to be angelic, both throughout all of chapter 1 and throughout all of chapter 2, including a problematic paragraph in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 that uh, next week I really want to take us into and and, uh, break it down for you. Because people want to do some strange things with those verses, in particular verse 2. And uh, we'll take our time to see that verse 2 sits in a context exactly where God put it, exactly where God wanted it. And it's in the middle of 1 through 4, and 1 through 4 is in the middle of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we have not left the angelic domain anywhere in this process. In fact, you'll notice verse 5 of chapter 2 continues in the realm of angels. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And so uh, all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 2, all the way to the very end of chapter 2, we have the contrast between angelity and humanity. And that's the point. That's what the early chapters are dealing with. It's not till chapter 3 then that we get to Moses and the contrast between Old Testament and New Testament, Levitical and Melchizedek. So we'll deal with that. Uh, hope, hopefully, uh, like I say, starting next week when we get into uh, chapter 2, assuming we accomplish everything here today that I think we're going to accomplish. Uh, verses 13 and 14 of, uh, of Hebrews chapter 1. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we have to deal with a lot of doctrine in that one verse right there. And then verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. That's what they are designed to be. That's what they are designed to do. Although one third of them didn't like that design and are presently, even now, still in rebellion against the plan of God related to their function for all eternity. So we've got uh, a lot of things we want to deal with there. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon the Father in His faithfulness, the Holy Spirit in His faithfulness, and Jesus Christ in His faithfulness to lead us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is our privilege and our blessing to assemble here today. We thank You for the uh, opportunity to do so. We do pray for our brothers and sisters in uh, Corpus Christi and Sweeney and other places along the coast where they've uh, shut down their services for today and most of the members have evacuated. Father, uh, thank you for your blessings. Our faith is in you and uh, continues to be in you uh, in, in every storm, physical and spiritual. Father, we thank you for the, the grace that comes by abiding in the living and abiding Word of God. And Father, we call upon your faithfulness again on this day to open the eyes of our understanding. We are 
searching the Scriptures, deep things that go far beyond the realm of humanity. I pray that You would work in us, Father. Give us a capacity to broaden our understanding, to think in much larger terms than we typically do. To not be so self-centered, Father, but to be Christ-centered as You are. To understand Your purpose in glorifying Your Son. So open our eyes today. Teach us from Your truth. I thank You for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all accomplishing what You've designed. I thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we have here in verse 13 kind of a repeat from the logic that got us really started here in verse 5. To which of the angels did he ever say? Right? And we have a string of verses here that are Old Testament passages. Old Testament passages by which the author of Hebrews is proving his point. The point that he made in the prologue of verses 1 through 4. That Jesus Christ is the celebrity of the universe. That God the Son is what it's all about. The Father has centered a plan in His Son. And even though He's spoken long ago to the fathers in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us. And He has spoken to us in His Son. And so the pinnacle of the revelation that comes in Jesus Christ is the focus of the uh, book of Hebrews. It should be our focus as well. And so we have all the glories of Christ, the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, upholding all things by the word of His power. You know, you see a big hurricane and you think, wow, what, uh, what would it be like if Jesus wasn't holding back, all right? That so much is under restraint and that it's by His word that the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. There is a coming planetary destruction, indeed uh, galactic dis- destruction, universal destruction. Uh, every molecule of matter in the universe is waiting for Jesus Christ to give the word and all of it is coming to an end. We find... Um, The statement that's made in verse 3, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now this is going to be expanded. This is one of the verses that he goes to when he goes back and he's going to amplify, he's going to prove that this powerful statement should be no surprise to anybody, that anyone with an Old Testament theology with a framework for the plan of God as the Old Testament unveils it should know these things already. Maybe not in the totality, maybe not of course with mystery doctrine and the things that pertain to the church, but clearly the things that relate to Israel and the coming millennium kingdom of Jesus Christ should be known and things related to angels should be known as the Old Testament has revealed them. So he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. All right. And so as we focus on the plan of God and we focus on what the, the Son of God did, the word became flesh. And we get that. And, the, and in his flesh, he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. And having accomplished the victory of that death on the cross, and having been buried and having been raised, he now, having become as much better than the angels. And this is a process, all right? And we have to, we have to digest this as Scripture reveals it, because there's some parts are, are difficult. We don't usually think in those terms. We think, well, he's always been better than the angels. All right, relax. I agree with you. Yes, he's always been better than the angels, except when? 
when he emptied himself, when he lowered himself, when he humbled himself. And so for a life of over 30 years, for a life, you know, including the pregnancy and the birth and the childhood and the adult ministry, and I believe he was pushing 40 by the time he was crucified and, and resurrected, all right, um, but for that period of his earthly incarnation, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. And he accepted that. He absolutely accepted that because this is what the Father asked of him in order to bring about the, uh, the perfection that was designed for us, for humanity, our redemption and our glorification. So, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And there are passages whereby it's useful to observe that he is the heir of all things. And, uh, but there are other passages in which we want to specify one of those all things that he uh, inherits. All right, And here is one of the all things that he inherits, a better name than any angel. And that's uh, what gets amplified now in the Old Testament survey that the author of Hebrews takes us through in, in verses 5 and following. He starts quoting Scripture after Scripture after Scripture to say, see, this should come as no surprise. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the unique position of God the Son as the only begotten, that God the Father begat one human nature, and that was the human nature of Jesus Christ, eternally vested into the person of God the Son, who became the God-man from that day onward. This is vital. This is some of the deepest doctrine of anything in Scripture, and this is what starts us then in the Old Testament survey that is 5 through 14. Now verse 13 mimics verse 5. In fact, it echoes verse 5. It uses the same language, to which of the angels has he ever said? And that's a marvelous device. The author is bringing it back to that idea again after perhaps a a little bit of rambling in verses 10 through 12, all right, going into the things of creation and, and uh, the glories there. So he, he returns back to the original point in verse 5 that says he is greater than all the angels. And not one angel was ever begotten by the Father. Not one angel was welcome to sit at his right hand. So to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so we have a great context here, a great passage here that brings in Psalm 110 and provides a, a, uh, an introduction that will be developed at a greater length in upcoming chapters. Psalm 110 comes up again and again and again throughout the book of Hebrews, and there's a reason for that. Because verse 1 speaks of sit at my right hand, and verse 4 speaks of the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Psalm 110 verse 1 and verse 4 are going to be used again and again and again throughout the book of Hebrews. So David's great sit at my right hand psalm identifies many principles of the Messiah and his footstool future. All right, that's my title, Messiah and his footstool future. Okay, because of his cross victory, he now has a footstool future. The father not only said, sit right here, let me get a footstool for you. 
All right? And that's the point. And he is seated in victory, and he is seated as a, uh, as a pause in between first advent and second advent because he has more work to do. But he can't come forth and do that second advent work until. And we have language of until that we have to wrap our minds around and make sure that we are very clear that we understand God's plan for first advent and second advent and this parentheses in between that's called the church. All right, You and I are living in a parenthesis, and we've had this before, we should be familiar with it. We are in this great big parenthesis in which the outworking of God's plan for Israel is currently on hold. That there's a partial hardening to the Jewish people for the time being, until such time as the, the church is complete and He calls the bride home to glory. And so we want to understand this as well for what it is. Sit at my right hand until... All right? Take a seat, take a seat until. And uh, there's so much doctrine in this. Let's, let's turn over to Psalm 110. Let's spend a little bit of time here, or a lot of time here this morning. So hold your finger there, or your ribbon, or your. Uh, don't have church bulletins today, so maybe just leave your finger there in, Pro, in, in Hebrews. Let's go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Now, we're accustomed to a many of David's psalms. Many of David's psalms are called enthronement songs. And because of that, um, this one often gets lumped in with others as an enthronement song. We saw Psalm 45 last week or the week before when we were talking about the queen. We were talking about the future millennial kingdom, that there is a coming king and there is a bride that's being prepared for that king. And, uh, and so we have a legitimate enthronement song there. There are others that are called enthronement songs when a king is installed in his kingly office, when he is installed and he begins to reign. And technically speaking, I don't know if, if I like counting uh, this as an enthronement song. Um, I guess it's not wrong because of verse 2, but it's probably better not to think of it this way because of verse 1. All right, this is almost like a wait right here until it's time to be enthroned enthronement song, <laughs> okay? Because this is the song uh, that David wrote that is addressing a king that's not yet ready, that needs something to be done first before he can go forth with a scepter. And you'll see what we deal with here. In fact, I'm going to outline it for you. We're going to give some, some points of study here in these three verses. Looking at Psalm 110, you'll notice there's only seven verses in the whole psalm. And we're going to take the first three as a unit and deal with those here today and hopefully do ourselves some great favors that will pay dividends again and again and again every time this concept is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And then we're going to come back uh, on a later occasion to handle verses 4 through 7. Because you'll notice in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All right? And so we have the introduction to Melchizedek that comes here. And material that uh, is brought up again and again and again in the book of Hebrews. Material that the author of Hebrews really wants to take much farther than he's able to go. He wants to go into some deeper realms than the Holy Spirit lets him go into because his audience is, is not ready to deal with it. They're, they're not mature enough to deal with some of the deeper things of 
the Melchizedek priesthood. And so that just boggles my mind because when I look at 13 chapters of Hebrews and all the deep, amazing things we're going to get between, uh, say, chapter 5 and, and chapter 13, it's just stunning to me that the author of Hebrews says, this, uh, you know, we're, we're skimming the surface here. There's, there's deeper realms to go into. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to see in the millennium when this gets expanded if, uh, if we get uh, Hebrews part 2 that gets added to the, to the millennial canon or not, um, assuming there is such a thing, all right? Now, don't get me sidetracked, I'll get on a rabbit trail. I think there will be a new New Testament, and then I don't know what we're going to rewrite the New Testament as the Middle Testament, I don't know. But uh, I believe that with the animal sacrifices and with the prophetic ministry of the Jewish people, Throughout the thousand-year reign of Christ, there will come a canon. There will come written scriptures that will give the content for what the animal ritual is uh, is foreshadowing. But that's a different message for a different day. Let's uh, talk about sit until. First of all, verse one. Psalm, I'm in Psalm 110. If you're with me here, the Lord said to my Lord, and that's important. We got Yahweh. We got Adonai. And these two titles are huge because a, a devout Jewish person would never vocalize Yahweh. They would always substitute Adonai in its place. But here they've got both. And so the devout Jewish person reading this would be slightly awkward, but to say that Adonai says to Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord. And yet there are two characters in view, uh, there, plus enemies, all right? So there is Lord and there is Lord, and one is speaking to the other. And one is told to have a seat at the right hand of the other. And uh, since we're church-age saints with the New Testament, it's kind of easy for us. We get that. This is God the Father and this is God the Son. All right? Any, any problems there? Okay? Uh, we're, we're good with Trinity. We're good with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit's not enthroned as the Father and the Son are. And, and so we, we want to understand that also. But the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And there's so much we've got to unpack just out of that because, uh, again, we're church-age saints and we have the New Testament. We're very familiar with John 1.1 1, 1, and we know that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. He's always been with the Father. When is there ever a time that the Son would be told, no, have a seat? Hasn't He always had a seat? Hasn't He always been in the right hand of the Father? Well, yes, until... He emptied himself until he humbled himself, until he left the ivory palaces, until the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And part of the kenosis and part of the emptying and part of what is difficult to understand is how the omnipresent Son of God chose to not exercise his omnipresence, who chose to humble himself to a monopresent reality and a monopresent uh, he still has an omnipresent reality, but he humbled himself to, if I can borrow a term here, a monopresent realization okay, of that, re- of that omnipresent reality. And it started with nine months in a womb. And then it was uh, in a manger. And then it was in diapers. And then it was in childhood. And then it was in, in uh, you know, growing up. And for nearly 40 years, I believe, uh, of, of his life, at least 30, 33, okay, um, Whatever the, whenever you date the birth of Christ, he was crucified in 33, okay? Could have been up to 6 or 7 BC when he was born. However you date that, it doesn't matter. During that time, 
he was not realizing his omnipresence. He was limiting himself to a monopresent realization. And so uh, we can say, as I think the author of Hebrews here would agree, and David would agree in Psalm 110, he was not seated but invited to be seated. Okay? You don't tell anybody that's already sitting down, have a seat. (laughs) Right? That's just nonsensical. But someone who's not seated is invited to have a seat, particularly if it's a special seat, particularly if it's one that has been reserved. If it's one maybe that a rebellious angel has been lusting after, then we're making a bigger point than just simply have a seat. Okay, So uh, things that we're unfolding here in verse 1, that we have two lords, uh, one that submits to the other, and, and then the one that is being submitted to is inviting the one that is submitting to sit at his right hand. So we notice that. We also notice an until. All right. So if I tell my child, you sit there until you're ready to tell your sister you're sorry, well then, if he's uh, just thinking of myself here, he's going to sit there for hours and demonstrate how stubborn he possibly could be. Okay, I'll show you. I'm not ready. Not yet. Not to, I'll starve to death before I sell. Um, tell her I'm sorry. So the language of until, the language of until is not eternal. The language of until is looking forward to an event, looking forward to a moment. And when that moment arrives, then the circumstances of until are done, right? And so this is, you don't have to know Hebrew or Greek for this, it's just any language has this, this language of until, this concept. And so here we have it, until. And in the meantime, until that moment comes, this is the process, I am doing something here. I and making your enemies to be a footstool for your feet. So he is making the footstool. And the materials he's using to make that footstool are his enemies. The enemies of the the, the Lord that's in subjection. So that, we got to digest that until, before we can get to verse 2. Verse 2 can't happen until verse 1 is done. And, and this is, again, proof. If, if you've got the bad doctrine out there, that horrible theology out there that tries to tell you the kingdom already is, all right, uh, the, the footstool's not yet finished. Footstool's still being finished. All right. So, because the Lord's still seated at the Father's right hand in session as head of the church. So, uh, a kingdom, though, is coming. And when the kingdom does come, authority will be centered in Zion. Not heaven, Jerusalem. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. And so until Jesus Christ returns and lands on the Mount of Olives and conquers and establishes and is seated on the throne of David in the city of David in Zion, until that happens, the kingdom is not yet. You and I, we can preach the kingdom and we should be preaching the kingdom and we should be preaching it as not yet. We are the bride of Christ in the heavenly places and the kingdom is not yet on this earth. We want to be clear on that. So, some concepts here. Sit until emphasizes the work of God the Father until such time that Christ will no longer sit. Sit there until. And when the until moment comes, he's done sitting there. He's got other things to do. Places to go, people to kill. 
Okay? Armageddon to win. A kingdom to, uh, to uh, usher in on this earth. And so this is the time of the Father's footstool making. Oh, I should have made that an F. What's the F word for making? The Father's footstool fashioning. Okay? That this is what the church age is. The church age is the footstool fashioning um, function of the Father. Okay? That's what He's doing right here, right now, while His Son is seated at His right hand. It's an ongoing work of the Father. Now, is it done? Is it finished? Well, we can prove it's not finished because He's still seated. And He was told to sit until. If the enemies are a footstool right here, right now, they've been a footstool for whatever length of time we want to say it happened, all right, um, it, the moment it happened, then the until is done. In which case, the one who was told to sit there shouldn't be sitting there anymore. He should then move on to verse 2 and obey that. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. So, we have, uh, we have the issues there. Um, now, another blessing for you here this morning. A, there's a contrasting passage. I love the until passages of, of the Bible. Uh, a, a contrasting passage has rain until. In 1 Corinthians 15, okay? I'm going to trap another finger. <laughs> now you've got a finger in Hebrews. You might rescue that one. We may not, it'll take us a bit. Um, now you've got another finger trapped in Psalm 110. And uh, for those of you that have more than three fingers, we can go to 1 Corinthians 15. I know, you're all using apps and you don't need fingers and you're just tapping glass. All right, I get that. Preached in a church last week that didn't have hymnals. Seemed to have survived that, so I'm moving into the 21st century. There's a contrasting passage. Some people think it's an identical passage, and I don't know how. Bugs me, but they do. Uh, It has rain until. But the emphasis is completely different. And sit until cannot be the same thing as reign until. Because while he's sitting right now at the Father's right hand, he's not yet reigning. He will reign when we get to Proverbs one, uh, to Psalm 110, verse 2, when the scepter is stretched forth from, from uh, Zion and he rules in the midst of his enemies. Okay? He is not yet reigning on the throne of David over the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That bugs a lot of people. In fact, I just put on a great big heretic outfit for much of Christendom who would be horrified to be told that he's not reigning right now. Okay? Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he's the king of the universe. Yes, he reigns over the universe. But on the throne of David with the future promised reign that the seed of Abraham has promised, that has not been ushered in yet. That is still future. He's still seated at the Father's right hand until... And so when we read in 1 Corinthians 15, here's a passage. And in verses 24 through 28, it's it's interesting when we talk about the resurrection. Verse 20 says, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's a past completed action. Happened on Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD. Christ was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then each in his order. And so... um, Since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. That's Christ. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's the provision. That's why there are not multiple paths to glory. That's why there's one path, one way, one truth, one life. Because we're all condemned in one man, we're all redeemed in one man. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, and sometimes we can put a comma and think of that as two items, or just one item, Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Okay? I take that as a rapture reference for the body of Christ at his coming in the air. Other people take that as believers at the second advent, but I think my view is better. Either way, it comes in an order. All right? And then there's others that aren't even mentioned here, such as the first resurrection and the last resurrection of Revelation chapter 20. And then comes the end. Then comes the end. And we want to pay attention to the end. The end is mentioned in verse 24. Uh, I don't think we have the word end in verse 28, but 24 and 28 are so parallel. And the, uh, the verse is in between. We've got a paragraph here that speaks of the end. Last week, were you here last week? And I walked you through all those in the beginning passages. Remember those? Okay, you were here, you were sleeping. All right, Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, John 1-1 in the beginning, Colossians 1 in the beginning. Proverbs 8 in the beginning. All those in the beginning passages. How many the end passages do we have? This is it. This is our great the end passage. And uh, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. Okay, so there is a deliverance. There is a paradidomy. And it's the same deliverance that is the Father delivered him to be crucified. That is the Jews delivered him to the Romans. The Romans delivered him to the soldiers. Their, uh, Judas Iscariot betrayed him. The word for betrayal is the word to deliver. And here is Jesus now delivering everything to the Father. This is the omega moment by which uh, all the temporal moments, time comes to a close. And once we cross beyond this omega moment, we enter into the timeless eternity future. So then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now keep that in mind because this is what I'm trying to drive at here this morning. Those are angelic references, and we're in an angelic chapter right now in Hebrews, quoting Psalm 110, talking about enemies. And all of these come together into the, uh, into the blending of angelity and humanity and what the Father's purpose is in, not the God-angel, but in the God-man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've got to have expanded thinking here this morning. When He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, what does that mean? Is He doing away with all angels? Is Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ uh, killing every angel? Does that mean Gabriel's days are numbered? Michael is doomed? What, what, what happens here? Or is this only the bad angels? I want the bad angels to go away. I want, the, I want Satan and that whole crowd in the lake of fire today. Why are they still roaming free? That bugs me. All right? So how, how do we understand these passages? Rule and authority and power. Uh, we need to do more work on those terms because they're angelic in Ephesians and Colossians and Hebrews and here in 1 Corinthians. Okay? It goes on to say, and this is the explanation. So the end, when can the end come? Is the end nigh? When does the end come? 
when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. And I tell you, we as church age saints ought to get this because we teach the abolishment of prophecy and tongues and and, and knowledge. And we, we lived through, the church went through a stage when the early stuff was done away with and now we're in the fullness of the church age. Well, here is more abolishment and uh, just as with tongues and prophecy and, and uh, miracles, there came a time when that was no longer needed. We have a complete canon. So too now with the angels, there is a time when they will no longer be needed, not in their current role. See, and they must be diminished. They must be reduced to the winds and the flames and the um, footstool that they are intended to be. All right. The explanation in verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so uh, who's the he and the his and the he and the his? Um, Is this the father or is this the son? Well, he must reign. This is the son who is preparing to deliver up the kingdom to the father, but until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So we have two different things that are happening here. This is not Psalm 110 all over again. And so I'm, I'm glad I got these up here side by side on your screen. There's sit until, and then there's reign until. You see that? And they're different. Because right now he's sitting, he's not yet reigning, not on the throne of David. When he stops sitting at the Father's right hand, he's going to descend on the clouds, he's going to come on a white horse, he's going to conquer, and then he's going to take the throne of David and he's going to reign. And how long is he going to reign? Okay, well, you can answer that a couple of ways. He's going to reign forever because, yes, that his kingdom is without end. But he's going to reign as a steward for a finite period of time. He's going to reign as a steward on behalf of the Father until the end. And then he will deliver the kingdom of the Father, and he will continue to reign because his kingdom is without end. He will continue to reign after he hands the kingdom to the Father, and he and the Father will reign in their co-regency he and the father will reign together throughout all eternity future so reign until is not sit until and reign until emphasizes the work of christ until the end all right and when we reach the until he stops doing what he's doing up to the until making a uh, abolishing his rule, the rule and the authority and the power, putting his enemies under his feet. See, God makes the footstool, but Jesus puts his feet on the footstool. See how that works? One, the Father's doing, here the Son is doing. So, this is the time of the Father subjecting all things under Christ's feet. Not the church age, okay? Because that subjection is not yet seen on the earth. He's not yet subjecting these all things under Christ's feet. Not in the church age. Not yet. Because in fact the bride has to be complete in order for Christ to do this. Christ will not subject the the rulers and the authorities under his feet until his bride is complete. And we want to be clear on this also. You'll notice um, let's see Verse 26 says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And of course, that's, uh, the last death will be during the millennium. Uh, in the fullness of time, there is no death, not of the new earth. 
For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Clearly the Father is not subjecting himself. It's everything but the Father that the Father is subjecting to the Son. Which is why the Son at the end hands the kingdom back to the Father. The first ever stewardship that ends in victory. Do you ever wonder about that? Schaefer wrote about that, Schofield wrote about that, Larkin wrote about that. Almost anyone that's ever written about the dispensation says, gee, the angels, they, they failed. Their dispensation ended in failure. Uh, Adam and Eve, they failed. Uh, Noah's flood, uh, failure. Uh, Tower of Babel, failure. Uh, the Jews, how great were they in their stewardship? Well, they crucified the Christ. Uh, the church, maybe the church will be the, the, the exception to the rule. The church age, we've got to end in victory. No, not so fast, all right? In later days, men will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. I believe the church age ends in maximum uh, ecclesiastical apostasy. And at the rapture of the church, uh, very few will be even looking for it. All right. Tribulation, millennium. The millennium's got to end in victory. No, Gog and Magog. The kings of the earth are leading a revolt against Christ. There has never been a dispensation that has ended in victory until... Jesus Christ hands the kingdom to the Father in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. The fullness of time, a thousand generations on the new earth, and Jesus Christ will hand the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. So verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him. It doesn't mean He stops reigning, but that means that He and the Father then reign as, as co-regents. Father, Son, co-regents. And it's no longer a stewardship at that point. So that God may be all in all. Stay tuned. We've got further studies on all in all coming up. Studies on all in all that come out of Philippians, that come out of Ephesians. Uh, Kathy Barrier asked a fullness question the other night. It's connected to this all in all. Okay, So uh, stay tuned. There's some deep things we have coming up in other studies. Now, uh, as I, I'm going to get back to Psalm 110 here in a moment, but understand that that subjection is not yet seen on the earth. Everybody that's trying to say, well, when he was seated at the Father's right hand, that's when he began to reign. They're conflating the two, and don't do that. Don't conflate the two. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He's not seated on David's throne. David's throne is not at the Father's right hand. Never has been, never will be. David's throne is in Jerusalem and it's been vacated since Nebuchadnezzar uh, destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. It is still a vacated throne today in 2017. But Hebrews 2.8, Scripture tells us that we do not yet see. I shared this last week, I'll probably show it a hundred times. We, in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him other than Himself. But now... We do not yet see all things subjected to Him. Okay? Right there in Hebrews 2.8. The church age is not the age where the all things are subjected to Christ. Not yet. It's not yet been realized on earth as it has been in heaven. It's in the mind of God. It's in the plan of God. But it's not yet on this earth as a reality. Not yet. And so uh, I was reading a commentary. I'm going back to Psalm 110 now. We have, as a commentary, 
on different things. The real popular book that just got released this year, and they're trying to redefine pistis and redefine pistuo and redefine what does it mean to believe on Jesus and be saved. And in the process of that, they're defending a theology that demands that the throne of David is the right hand of God and that he reigns already now. Satan is bound now. We're in the kingdom now, in case you weren't aware. <laughs> All right? Newsflash that book is wrong, and that whole theology is wrong. Satan is not bound today. Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. All right. So, we have sit until, we have reign until. And there's others, right? If you, if you decide you're going to debate a Roman Catholic at some point on Mary's perpetual virginity, you've got a kept her a virgin until passage in, in Matthew. All right? That says that Joseph kept her a virgin until the birth of their firstborn son. Okay? At which point then, he didn't keep her a virgin after that. That's the language of until. That they had a normal family life after that. They raised a perfect child and then a bunch of other knuckleheads that uh, James and Jude and... I mean, it's... Right? Anyway, that's a whole other story. But the, the language of until is simple. A child can understand until, as I've already illustrated. Now, back to Psalm 110. So, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies. Why does the Lord have enemies? Okay. And which, which angel would he say this to? Okay. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit on my right hand? Well, the answer is to none of them. And, and a big reason for why is not only do they not measure up, but their enemies are him, <laughs> okay? The enemies of these, of these fallen angels is God and the elect angels. You know, Satan's enemies or, or you know, any, if uh, we don't know many of the fallen angels' names, but Beelzebub, right, or, or whoever, okay? Um, Apollyon, if, if that's a fallen angel, uh, uh, Abaddon, okay? We, we don't know too many of the names of the fallen angels. Uh, but all those fallen angels that are lusting after that seat, none of the elect angels are lusting after it, they know better. But the fallen angels are, are lusting after that seat, and God never once invited them to have a seat there. And, and it makes sense because to sit there means to wait until the enemies be made a footstool for your feet. And so he can't say this to any of the fallen angels because he would be the enemy he'd have to make into a footstool. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. All right. So, uh, but the fact is, there were no enemies anywhere in the universe until Satan fell and until one third of the angels went after him. And then all of a sudden now we have a conflict. Now we have a war. Now there are enemies. And there is God and the faithful angels and then there is Satan and the, and the uh, faithless angels and uh, we're told that it's two-thirds, one-third on, on a ratio. We don't know the number. All right? And so those enemies, something has to be done with them. Something has to be done with, to resolve the angelic conflict. God's not going to put up with it forever. He's already put up with it an awful long time, like all of human history and longer. Okay? And it continues. But humanity is what resolves the conflict with fallen angelity. There's a reason why this all comes together in the Father's plan. So, 
That subjection is not yet seen. All right. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So we have enemies in verse 1, we have enemies in verse 2, and this is the point, that the enemies have to be made a footstool so that they can be put under his feet, and that Jesus is going to rule in the midst of them not in the absence of them, not in the consequence of them being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, but in the midst of them. There is a rebellion throughout the millennium. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people, verse 3, your people, aha, uh-huh. so you have enemies, but you also have people. Okay, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Okay, That's the second advent. First advent was the day of humility. Second advent is the day of power. And your people, the Jewish people, are the free will offering of the second advent of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the burnt offering in the first advent, but the Jewish people are the free will offering of the second advent. It's a beautiful thing. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array, from the womb of the dawn. Wow. Okay? What Satan threw away when Halel ben Shahar fell, when uh, the bright and shining one, um, he threw it away, and yet here's Israel going to be clothed in that kind of glory. Your youth are to you as the dew. All right, so here's his kingdom, here's his reign, and the Jewish people are uh, dressed in all the glory that Satan forsook. Okay, beautiful thing here. Um, let me give you a couple of other principles on this. Um, ruling in the midst of your enemies, the fact that there are still enemies, there are still unbelievers. The millennium begins with all believers, but it doesn't take long. That next generation gets born and not all of them get saved. And even before that next generation gets born, the believers that do enter the millennium are still sinners. They survive the tribulation. They still have volition. You realize that the Red Sea people, right? They walked through the Red Sea. They looked back. The waters came crashing down. They're delivered and they start grumbling, right? How long did that take? And so how long is it going to take for the tribulational survivors to begin the millennial kingdom and then start grumbling about what they don't like in that new administration in Jerusalem. Okay, You put a new ruler in, a new president gets inaugurated, and how long does it take? And you start talking impeachment. Let's get rid of this guy. I didn't want him. I didn't ask for him. And so how long before those tribulational survivors start going carnal? and uh, become not too pleased with perfect environment, perfect government. (laughs) What else can fallen man find to complain about? All right. So, um, but not the Jewish people. Not the Jewish people. When Gog Magog comes up and starts surrounding the holy city, the Jewish people stay faithful. Likely for the first time ever, okay? The Jewish people have victory at the uh, conclusion of the thousand years. Your people will volunteer freely. Your people will be the, the, the free will offerings, sacrifices 
in the day of your power. So, um, keep in mind, uh, we have Psalm 110, we're spending a lot of time, and there's also Psalm 8. When we talk about the subjection of all things, Psalm 110 stresses enemies, while Psalm 8 stresses all things. And we've got to understand both. We're going to synthesize Psalm 8 with Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews synthesizes Psalm 8 with Psalm 110. And obviously the enemies are a part of all things, but the non-enemies, the friends, are a part of the all things as well. The bride is a part of this picture as well. And so uh, we have enemies when we also have all things. Psalm 8. Are you familiar with Psalm 8? We read it a few classes ago. Look at it again. We'll have it coming up also again and again and again. But in Psalm 8, uh, there's enemies, there's adversaries. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels or lower than the Elohim, than the gods. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All right, and so we take Psalm 8 and we want to combine that with Psalm 110. And with Psalm 110, the emphasis is on enemies. With Psalm 8, the emphasis is on everything. Both get quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. Um, and so when you're looking ahead, in fact, let me, if I may, draw a picture for you. <laughs> Not that one. That was last hour. Let me just make a new page. All right. Is that thick enough? That's not probably not thick enough. I'm going to go thicker. All right. I don't know how to make my pen bigger. But there we go. All right. So this is what we have coming up. This is what we have to look forward to. Today, hopefully, is the rapture. Or one of these days, okay? Any, any passing moment, that'd be great. And then the tribulation, and then the second advent of Jesus Christ. This is the day of the Lord. This is the, what brings about those scepter to rule from Zion. This is, begins the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. But understand something. It's only 1,000 years. It's only 1,000 years. I say that in all seriousness. 1,000 years are like a day. For you and I in resurrection glory, for the Lord, a thousand years is just a day. A day is as a thousand years. Then we have the uh, destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. And then we have the new heavens and new earth. This is a thousand generations. Hallelujah. All right. Isn't that amazing? Okay. And so when we're looking forward to the millennium, Versus the fullness of times, there's a distinction to be found. And sadly, it's been, it's been 60 years, well, longer than that since Larkin. Larkin wrote in the 1920s. We're coming up on a, on a, a century. 
since we've had a serious presentation and defense of the fullness of times as the pinnacle of the plan of God. Everybody since Schaefer has been focused on the millennium. They just say, okay, millennium, great white throne, eternity future. No, 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 no. Because according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay? The real emphasis is not the millennium, it's the fullness of time. This is only a thousand years, this is a thousand generations. Okay? So let's keep these things straight. And if there is an emphasis on enemies here, there is the all things here. Because the last enemy is death. And that's done away with here in the millennium. In the fullness of time, there is no more death. But there is the subjection of the rulers and authorities and powers, and we've got to see that as well. The diminishing of the angels, which happens throughout the thousand generations. And we want to see that here this morning if we can. So uh, get your Larkin charts out, reread your Larkin charts. You'll see that uh, he, he has kind of some circles like that with the millennial earth, the new heavens and new earth, and in between is this destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. And you'll see some charts like that. And uh, pay attention to them. It becomes uh, important. All right. So Psalm 110 stresses the enemies while Psalm 8 stresses all things. The millennium fulfills the enemy's emphasis while the fullness of times fulfills the all things aspect. The all things aspect. Why does he rule with a rod of iron? Did did Joseph and Mary have to raise their firstborn son with a rod of iron? I don't think so. I think he was sinless and perfect and the, the best son ever to be raised in the history of firstborn sons. Um, must have made it tough for Jude and James and the siblings. Can you imagine if your older brother is perfect? All right. I'll have to ask Matt what that was like. He's not here today, that's why I'm picking on him. All right. But the all things, okay? The dispensation of the fullness of times is the all things subjection. And, and if, uh, Ephesians 1.10 speaks of that. 1 Corinthians 15.27 and 28 speaks of that. Speaks of the all things. Not only the enemies, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, but he must also abolish all rule and authority and power. What's that about? How is he abolishing angels? Or he's abolishing the function of rule, authority, and power as he's diminishing the angels from what they do now to what they no longer need to do. Ephesians 1.10, verse 9 says, He, God the Father, made known to us, the church, the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Christ. The mystery of God the Father's will is a, is a good pleasure centered on Jesus Christ with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. We're not looking forward to the millennium, we're looking forward to the fullness of times. Schofield thought they were one and the same, and that was his mistake. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. The millennium is not the summing up of all things in Christ. The millennium is simmering rebellion against Christ. And I'll prove that to you here. Um, If I run out of time today, we'll spend next week demonstrating what a failure the millennium is going to be. Summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. What about under the earth? It's not there. 
Because by the fullness of times, there's a new heavens, there's a new earth, there's not a new hell. There's not a new lake of fire. That's over, done, sealed off, never again to be reopened because no one else will ever need to be added to it. The all things is in the heavens and on the earth. And uh, the all things subjection, 1 Corinthians 15, we were just there a little bit ago, 27 and 28. All right, here we go. When Christ no longer sits in heaven, he will go forth to take the scepter and rule from Zion. And so we go from verse 1 to verse 2. And what's staggering to me is verse 2 is not quoted in, in this chapter. Verse 2 is not quoted in this context. When he says, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? He's not even thinking yet about the reign. Okay? He's talking about the humility of Jesus Christ and the exalted position of Jesus Christ. The main point of what has been said up till now is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat in the heavenly places. That's what's being stressed, is that Christ is presently seated at the right hand of God. When he no longer sits in heaven, he will go forth and take the scepter and rule from Zion. This hard rule will take place in the midst of his enemies. You know, after King Saul died, Jesus didn't get the whole, uh, not Jesus, David, did not get all of the nation of Israel. Did you know that? When uh, Saul died, the people were very happy to take Saul's son and make him the next king. Even though the prophet had already said David was the next king, the Lord had already said David was the next king, David ends up with a very small rule in Judah over the tribe of, uh, of Judah, right? He has a throne in Hebron over the tribe of Judah. He does not get all the 12 tribes, not right away. Why is that? Is that a foreshadowing? Is that a typology? What, think about it. Is that a reflection of a limited reign followed by a greater reign? A millennium followed by a fullness of time? I believe it is. Okay? And we'll see that. Next week we're going to come back and we're going to see the failure that the millennium is, the hard rule that it is, the rebellion against Jesus Christ. Perfect environment, perfect government. What can we complain about? And yet he rules with a rod of iron. Because even those that are obedient are faking it. They're feigning obedience. And... uh, course he sees right through it he knows it all heavenly father i thank you for this morning i thank you for truth i thank you for deep things and father um, you've given us some deep things here this morning and i pray that you would equip us to digest them to to uh, think on them and even if we don't understand everything today let us not forget but dwell on and consider and add them to uh, add these considerations to other studies that we may be doing, Father, that we might be looking forward in, in excitement to what you have for us. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your truth, for the humility of your Son. Because he humbled himself under the mighty hand, he will be exalted at the proper time. And might we also, Father, humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that we too will be exalted at the proper time. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to these truths and show us our applications. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will dismiss with our closing hymn, the hymn of the month.